This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. So I had a business that was selling, reselling software, which would make sure your computer didn't fail. Nothing failed, so my business didn't take off. What was your biggest lessons yep. that people can learn from? Yeah, that's a really good question because I look back at that a lot now and I think, what was I doing at the time? What are the key stats that someone can look at? We've got four key things at the moment that we look at. One is... I feel like we're at the start of the revolution. Industrial revolution will become the robotic re revolution or whatever it is. Can you talk to what the big picture is for yeah, AI think... and what it does and what it's going to mean for businesses? Yeah. Well, where do you start on that? So... What it really means to live like golden. Yeah, we're golden, baby, we're golden. They're about to see it shine, cause we're golden. Tristan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I um, you've had it like when I do my research, I look into the the overarching journey, um, and yours is one that I think is quite dynamic. Um, a lot of different experiences, and I'm excited to work into this with you because I think, um, I think we'll, we'll learn a lot about you and and kind of see you know you talked about we were just talking about biohacking off air and yep. you're right into that so i think we're gonna we're kind of bit gonna get to this end point where we we learn a lot about you um what we learn from you but we also understand you know just you know potentially how you you're wired the way you are but we might start with a startup story so i'd love to hear about how you first got into business um and and you know um how you started out and then you know a little bit about that journey is and how it evolved over time as well yeah so I started out, I'll, start, I'll go even further back than we were talking about before, but I think with every startup, someone's got a few failed startups along the way and I've always had this entrepreneurial flair. And um, I started back in 2000, my first businesses, none of them succeeded or I would have, you know, I thought they were going to be unicorns <laughs> at the time. Like, I don't know if you remember 2000, might be too young for that, but it was um, the Y2K bug and everyone was worried that overnight, you know, 2000 the clock would tick over every computer in the world would fail so i had a business that was selling reselling software which would make sure your computer didn't fail my problem was that it actually never happened nothing failed so my business didn't take off and yeah. i sold a few licenses to a few pieces of software paid for probably a trip overseas and that was about it but that really built my flair and i had a few businesses along the way i had football um colored blankets that we got manufactured in india and we had another business which was doing like um marketing on coffee cups and stuff which was really really good at the time we just never took off with that well but it all led to my first real business which was InfoReady, um which was a data and analytics business off the back of the gfc so 2008 gfc's hit hard the biggest issue if you think about it in the gfc was around um financial reporting compliance the subprime issues everything like that I'm a data expert. That's where I started, technology in data. And I thought, well, there's no better time to have a data consultancy than right now. And we started and we had a different flair on it. It wasn't just we're going to get data for you and turn it into something. We had it was all around compliance and governance to start with. And um, that's where we started. Started in the, well, let's say the garage, but it was actually the spare bedroom of my townhouse. Um, you know, I even had you know, our first employee who laid a partner. You know, his, he, he was from Brisbane, mate of mine, would come stay in you know, the spare bedroom. He had to share the bed with the dog. Um, <laughs> dog almost made it till recently, almost 17 years old. So there wow. you go. So he almost outlived the startup. Well, he actually did outlive the startup because we sold it his time. 
Um, but that's where it all started. Yep. I'd love to talk about the false start. Yep. Right? Because I feel like that's – we all have a bias in us that thinks the problem we're solving is bigger than what it actually is, right? Until you actually figure out you're solving a problem that's actually worth solving. Yeah. Can you talk to that, obviously, and what was your biggest lesson, say, from – the, the previous startups that you had compared to InfoReady yep. that people can learn from? Yeah, that's a really good question because I look back at that a lot now and I think, yeah, what was I doing at the time? But at the time when I first started, there was a real world problem. There was a, a fad, like there was something that was going to happen and everyone was building into it. And so many times that's what people do. It's like, oh, the next big thing is whatever it is, right? A mobile app. Well, it's probably a bad example, but and everyone starts trying to build the next best mobile app. How many of those actually succeed? Very few, but the ones that do, do really well. So I found there was a real world problem. I thought, let's capitalize on it, but it wasn't really a, a big enough problem to kind of market, like to, it was either going to happen on that day or not. But it's an entrepreneurial flair. I was a 20 year old. I was, I was young. It was just kind of like, it was a good way to dip your toe in and try something without losing much. Well, if anything, and just really get a taste to it um, as opposed to really doing a proper, proper analysis of a market. Like when I go into a startup, I look at things and I say, okay, well, what's, what's the eventual exit or what's the eventual business long-term? So there's an, I think it's Amazon do this where they, they get you to write your press release before you start the business. It's like, you know, so if this was InfoReady, my next business is like InfoReady exited to Melbourne IT for – 35 million or whatever it is and that, that's the exit right and you write that before you start and that's what you try to achieve along the way back then it was more like oh shit, the y2k bug's coming let's quickly build something let's sell it to people make a quick buck while we can and i think you learn from that the other one's like you know the one where we did um we were effectively taking pashminas or blankets from north india where they were you know dollar fifty they were great we got them to customize them into our colors we actually it's was, it's was it actually quite a good project because it was a, it had a social responsibility too it was okay we only wanted to buy them from a the particular village and we did like we were felt so good about what we did and it was awesome and we did it all the wrong ways like you know we had like rickshaws taking these down to the docks and we're packaging them down there and getting them back to australia and this is awesome but we hadn't done our full research as to, you know, is there a market scope out there? Can we sell them, et cetera? We had no license to sell them with the AFL. So the second that they got here, they were nicely coloured blankets that we could not sell as a football team, right? So it was things like that. It's kind of do your proper research, proper planning, proper analysis. Is there a real market? You know, when we went into InfoReady, I mean, it, there was no bigger market than that at the time. We knew data and analytics was a big thing. It's going to be long and sustainable. We knew this market and we had our expertise. And the other thing I learned in it too was do, yes, stick to your, your knitting. You know, what, what do you know? Like what's your expertise? You're always going to do better at what you know than trying just to capitalise on something that looks like it's going to be great. Yeah, it's so true as well. And, and like just on that point, like it's almost what you don't do that makes the business as well, right? Yeah. Like it's not just what you do, but it's what you choose not to do, Yeah. you know, and staying and kind of owning that corner of the market at least to get started. Um. I would love for you, you, you just mentioned something then that I, I'm really interested in. So you said I did proper research and, and on the market. Can you, what are the key stats that someone can look at as like a framework to understand whether or not the business they're about to start or the business they're in right now is viable or second to that, 
if you are, if they are in the business and they haven't done this research, what are the things that they should yeah. kind of keep in mind? Yeah, the, the number one thing is, is there somebody who's going to buy your product or service? That's the number one thing. So I always picture, who am I going to sell it to? So I actually try and sell it to someone before I even get into it, right? Mm. We've got Google, right? Now, generative AI, you can always write, you know, generative AI, write me a business plan for XYZ business and it will do it. But I'm always looking for analyst reports somewhere. I mean, my, my businesses have been in the corporate services, enterprise services, so there's always something that's an analyst report of some sort to say, this is how big the market is. It's a, you know, I'm looking at health and longevity at the moment as an example, right? Like in the tech space, in the wellness space, it's a $7 trillion market. We've got that stat from a Bain somewhere or a, or a, or a, um, a McKinsey will publish that. You can find them all on the internet and that's a really good starting point to look at things. So if there's research reports, that's great. You know there's a market. They'll go into a lot of detail around what we're trying to do. So for me, when, during the GFC with InfoReady, I could look at that and go, well, what's the market problem out there? You know, you had subprime was an issue in the US. That was an issue because of um, lending people money without compliance. There's a lot of reports on it. A lot of research can be mm -hmm. done. I knew there's a market in that that we, that we could work with. So, so that, was, that was the starting point. So Google, to get started, um, very easy. Some people, you know, I've, I've always never been afraid to pay someone a little bit of money to do that. Like there are experts out there that will get to that level. It's worthwhile. Better than failing and starting again. Um, but a lot of startups when you're you know, kind of bootstrapped, you'll find it on Google. Yeah. And in that data, what, like, are you looking for market? Are you looking for a growing market as well? Like, is it, you know, you don't want to be in a declining market, of course. Or yeah, of course. Yeah. What, so, you know, what are some of those key things that you are looking for in those reports? Well, well, two things, right? So one is if you're entering a new market with a unique product, it's will someone buy it. And if you're entering into an existing market, it's why is my product better, right? Mm. So you can go in. So I've, I've always been told, you know, it's not always best to try and find something unique. It's sometimes better to find something that's already there and do it better. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, it's not the fast mover. It's, you know, it's the fast follower that, that ends up being the main, you know, is MySpace a big one out there or Facebook, right? Yeah, or it's so true. Craigslist, whatever whatever they were called, right? That's that's the way to look at it. So, so it's looking at who is going to buy it because there's no business if no one buys the service, right? And that's kind of my main thing is always like who is going to buy it are they willing to pay for it? Are they going to get value out of it? And and then how does that turn into revenue, which can then generate the business? Yeah, awesome. I just feel like that's such a, like if I could go, like cause I, I, I've owned businesses as well for a while. And if I think back to when I was like, oh, none of that stuff ever came into my head, <laughs> at least for the first two, right? As whereas now, even what we're doing now is like, you know, you got it, you focus on those things and you're almost trying to validate your idea before you go to market go to market and then you've got to, you know, then you've got to be able to actually yeah. build your product into the market and validate it to that, that second kind of level, which is like, you know, people are actually purchasing it and then you've got to be able to operate. Right. So, yeah. um, I actually, I can give you a really, really good story of the opposite. Even after all my experience, after we exited the first business, we created a business called Trady with an IE on the end, not Trady as in the underpants and Kmart stuff that, that that's a brilliant brand. But, um, we built a business and me and my business partner who exited um, InfoReady looked at it and said, we we're both doing some renovations on our house and it was so frustrating. Yeah, tradies never turn up on time. So we created a product, a mobile app out of spite market, <laughs> yeah. right? And I just wanted to give it to the tradies, right? 
and I never thought about who would actually pay for it and who would actually use it. Like I knew everyone would love it. So what basically was like last mile logistics for tradies. So you know when they're coming to your house. And then we built, it's still one of the best apps I've ever built, functionally with the maps, with the payments, with everything. It's awesome. Problem we never looked at was would tradies actually want to use it? <laughs> and then as we started getting people on board, it was because they were our revenue stream because they had to pay us, not the consumer. It was them paying us and it was a clip of the ticket off their, everyone, their appointments. And they hated it because it made them accountable, right? Number one, right? It made them work to different standards, more corporate standards and trade standards, right? There were unions involved. There was just all these different things. And as we got to it, we're like, geez, no one's ever going to use this. Although it is the absolute prime product for anyone, right? And there's still very few services out there that would actually do it. You know, when the tradie's going to arrive at your house. The reason we built it was because we're getting frustrated being at work and it's like, okay, I've got to leave at three o'clock because the tradie's coming at four. You get home at four. Oh, sorry, I'm off. I'll come back tomorrow. I'm running late, this and that. And it just was a pain in the ass. And then we built some features in and bad money after bad money, but there was no real research done on it. We just built it because we needed it, right? Yeah, and it's so, I mean, look, like, and these are the things that, you sometimes this is that what that bias that we're talking about is like yeah. you're not you know you can and i think it does talk to the fact that you can build a great product but unless there's an actual need for it which kind of comes back to that principle we mentioned is like you know and and especially in what you build it's a two-sided marketplace as well so it's you know you, you gotta build both sides yeah, yeah you need both sides to actually want it that's the amazon yeah. model right is yeah. like you know both sides need to actually come to the party for yeah. it to work and then needs yeah. to, which you know is is, is half the challenge. Yeah. Um, I'd love for you to talk about Beyond Info Ready, right? And, you know, we kind of, we're talking about it off air, but because um, I think there might be some great insights into picking yeah. up a business that was struggling um, and what you did to kind of turn it around, which can, can be like another layer to what we just spoke about then. Yeah, so Info Ready, we sold to Melbourne IT in 2016. And it was all part of building a new business for Melbourne IT. Melbourne IT, very famous, great business, you know, effectively turned on the internet in Australia in 1996 and was probably, take value of money, it was probably the first tech unicorn in Australia when it listed in 99. That's an amazing business. Wind forward, <coughs> they, um, they bought all these businesses to create an enterprise version of what they did for a small to medium business uh, market. So, yeah, going from selling it to an accounting firm, to a product, to selling it to Telstra, as an example. Um, and they went through that process. So when they bought these businesses, they kind of ran them the wrong way. They didn't really understand the enterprise business. So they bought our business. They bought another business called Outwear Mobile. They bought um, you know, a few other businesses along the way. And it just didn't work, right, the way that they were running it. So they tried a few things. They had no real experts there. And I don't think they uh, – sometimes in businesses, they don't always – look to the founders of the original business. There's, there's a thing with corporates and founders that I don't know it's ever going to resolve itself, but a good acquisition is when a corporate buys them and goes, actually, these guys are really good. They've made money. They want to stick around. Let's make their life easy and let's use them, right? As opposed to there's other ones where they go, oh, they've made money. They probably don't want to be here. They never ask you, right? And, and kind of take that as a, the status quo. The business at that point, they didn't have the expertise in it. They ran it like a different business. So every time something failed, they ran it at what they knew rather than bringing the experts. So in 2018, 19 um, timeframe, business started going backwards and the enterprise business of it, which kind of brought the whole business down and both together started going backwards. So 
we got into the situation where you know the share price tanked significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a major shareholder as well, me and my partner, so we, we lost a bit of cash on that. But as the market tanked, um, you know, they were looking for reasons. Shareholders are getting a bit upset, so they were looking at you know what they needed to do to repair it. They started trying to rebuild one business and parts of the other. So by the time it got to about July to August 2019, they needed to do something different. Um, I came in at that point in time as a CEO of, of the listed company and looked at it and said, look, two businesses, let's split it, right? And looked at what we were good at. So the lesson I got out of that was if you're not – like I didn't know the SMB business, the small to medium business very well. I knew the enterprise business. That was a bit probably that needed the biggest rebound. So I could fix that. So we looked at it and said, well, let's do this. Let's split the two businesses. We had a debt position that we had to fix. Best way to do it is sell one of the two. And we tried to sell the other business because I knew the other one. Unfortunately, it's always the one that is seen to be performing the least. That has the most opportunity. So everyone wants to buy that. So we ended up entering into the process of trying to buy that at the same time. Bought that business back, but still separated them both apart and um, split them into what they really should have been. One focused on one market and one another. And the best example I got of that is when I was at a Amazon conference one year, I remember I was talking to like a C-level executive of a big corporate, we'll call them Telstra again. I don't think it was, but it was someone else. It was one of the banks actually, uh, one of the big four. And, um, and I'm talking to him and I'm trying to land this deal, multi-million dollar deal, like having a good conversation. Yeah, we're going to do this, whatever. And this person came up and was quite antsy and just like, yeah, I need, a, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. And it ends up this person just kept getting a bit more aggressive and more aggressive and wanted to talk to me about something. And it was because he had a, a website with us that was his bread and butter that he was paying $9.90 a month for or something like that. And it just wasn't working. And he was having some issues and it ends up he forgot his password and we fixed it, whatever. But that got in the way of my conversation over like a seven, $8 million deal. And I've got this $300 a year deal going on. And now both customers to me were equally as important but you just needed to deal with them differently. So that was where we kind of said, we've really got to separate these out and manage them the way that they should be managed. Team, if you're loving this episode and you want to help support the show so that we can continue to grow and share the wisdom of amazing individuals, please remember to go hit the subscribe button. You have no idea how much it helps us. The first thing I was going to say before, the stats behind founder-led businesses versus non yeah, and then the success of acquisitions in that space is like ridiculous. Like yeah. you know, the almost I don't know what the stats, but I think I'm pretty sure it's like seventy to eighty percent of businesses that you know when the founder exits, you know, in 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 an acquisition, don't you know they end up failing? Like yeah. it's something crazy like that, um, which I think is an interesting stat in itself when we talk about M and As and stuff like that. But what you kind of going into that bit? What do you think the key lesson is? Right, that regarding to say building a startup from from that, you know, I I know we talked about separating the business, but what's the principle, you know, in regards to that a business owner can take out of that? Yeah, I think the probably the fundamental, the number one thing for me is the culture of it. So when a founder builds a business, they have a lot of passion. They've bootstrapped it. They've done something. They know they've been in the business. They've worked in every position in the business at some point in time. Like I've. I was a consultant, uh, I've done the books, I've paid the salaries, I've sold something, I've you know, done the marketing. So I know every part of the business. The culture comes off that and it builds over time and they know that. And when you bring it into a new business, then you've got to retain that culture. And a lot of people will look to the founder for that mm. um, or to the old, you know, the existing leadership team. Once you try and change that fundamentally and 
It depends on the size of the acquisition and what the reason for the takeout was. But in ours, it was, yeah, we would become a significant part of a business. If you try and change that significantly and say, okay, well, that worked because you're a startup, but it's not going to work because you're a corporate, that's wrong, right? Because the best companies in the corporate world retain the culture or retain the good aspects of it, right? To say, okay, well, we're going to come in and change that completely. So when a founder leaves or you start doing things that is different to the way the founder did it, it kind of upsets that and people were kind of like, well, you know, we used to like the idea that we could wear uh, shorts on a 35 degree day and now you're telling us we have to wear a suit, right? We've never gone that extreme, but it's kind of, but it, it's that level of it. It's kind of like, well, it's one of the little things that, that make people successful because it's the little things that surround everything that kind of distracts you from what you really need to do. So if we're building a mobile app and everyone's upset because, you know, we've got a suboptimal coffee machine in the office, right? Like, it's small little things that, that tend to, to annoy people. But founders don't care. They just, we just go in and just do it. Like, you want to fix that? Done, right? Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And I, like it, and, and I've never really thought of it that way, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, the small distractions, as small as they are, yep. can make a big difference to the individuals that are doing the work. Yep. Which, you know, like I, I actually have never thought of it that way, but... I mean, look, as a founder, you you don't need to think of it that way because you're like, yeah. oh, cool. I just want my people to be, you know, I know that I need them to be happy in the workplace to do their best work. And the sec and you know, if if, one, if you, the less people you have that are unhappy or, or that are complaining, yeah. in a sense, that the the more productive. We, we had, a, um, we had a, a cracker. It was like the day after I took. I remember the day I took over a CEO. It was like. Like, for me, it was just so surreal, right? Not because I was becoming the CEO, because a publicly listed company, but the way it happened, right? And I was, like, on my way up to Hamilton Island and in the car with my kids, I get a phone call. It's like, can you sign an NDA? I'm, like, I'm in a car on the way to the airport. No chance. Like, can you be in Sydney for a board meeting? Get there. I'm in my board shorts and thongs, right? Go to David Jones, buy a suit, go out, go to board meeting, get appointed, turn up the next day in front of, you know, almost probably 500, 600 people in the office, announced myself as a CEO and then bang, it's all happening. And then the day after that, I'm down in Melbourne and I'm with my team in, in our office. And I said to the guys like, yeah, it's really cool. They're really open with me because I'm the founder as opposed to the other ones. There's a different level of you know, how comfortable they are with you. And I said, you know what, let's change things. Let's have t-shirt Tuesday, right? And one of the guys who's still with us today and he's one of our leaders, he turned around and he goes, why should we wear t-shirts just on a Tuesday? Right? And I thought to myself, that's, that, that was our mentality. That's how we worked, right? It was kind of like, we just do it our way, right? What's comfortable with people? And they all, you know, very comfortable techies, developers. So for the first month after that, I wore T-shirts every day except for Tuesday, <laughs> just to be quite funny. And then, um, but now that's, we changed the culture on that point for the entire business. And the rest of the business who weren't with us saw that too. It was just that little thing. And they're like, yeah, that's quite cool. They're going to make such a change. The only change we made was that the developers already wore them. It's like some of the corporates and the sales guys started wearing T-shirts and we wear T-shirts everywhere. We have a, there's not an event in the office which doesn't have a T-shirt made up for it. It's becoming a bit of an overhead, but that's cool, right? Yeah. The tiny little thing that made, that removed the distraction, but actually did the opposite, got people motivated and we're probably already doing it anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, and I mean, I think like it's an interesting insight for someone who's come, you know, you obviously being a founder. Yeah exit then coming back in as a as a ceo especially to a company that you have experience with previously right it's like i think there's an interesting notion there 
on on like team building, right? Yeah. And and more importantly, culture and kind of working through that. Um, even at the startup level, right? Like you know, because I think sometimes when you're in a startup, you try to be the you try to be the corporate, right? Yeah. And and you know you know and you try to kind of implement these systems before your time. Like there's and and you know you're in the early days, and and the reality is is like startups are really hard. Like I think that's the thing that even me now I'm like, yep, it is a grind, and so making it more of a grind for no apparent reason or where there's no upside, which can happen. Like if you try to implement a corporate structure into a startup, you know, it can sometimes like yeah, can be a backfire. massive backfire, right? And I think there's a, a key lesson there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess one of the things I would also be interested in is as a CEO picking that business back up and turning it around. What were, what were, I mean, apart from that kind of little culture piece and the little things, like what were some of the fundamentals of growing a business and, and kind of building it back up that you implemented that yeah. again, kind of create key lessons for people? So the first thing is trust. Um, so I think our team had lost a lot of trust in the previous executives because um, a lot was said, not a lot was done. Mm. And yeah, we, they all saw the writing on the wall and how everything happened over a period of time. Um, trust and just you know, being comfortable to be at work, right? That was number one. Um, the second one for me was relationship with customers. So when a business is falling apart, the one thing you tend to do is you're, you're, in, you're dealing with shareholders, you're dealing with banks, you're dealing with you know, legal, you're dealing with all these sorts of things. You're not dealing with your customers, yeah. right? So in my first kind of two months, I said to the team, I said, look, if I, there's two things I need to do. I need to meet with everyone in the business, almost individually, we had a thousand people. So how, how do I get around to meet with people? And in a, in a, I'm, a, I'm a casual person. It's not like a formal, like, you will come and meet with me at this point yeah, in time, yeah. or I've got a schedule walk around the office. It's like, I just want to bump into someone and just say, hey, who are you? Let's go for a coffee. Let's get to know each other sort of thing. And that's what I do. That's kind of the, I'm very personal that way. But then with the customers as well, I also said, look, guys, I'm going to have to spend half my time with customers because I've got to rebuild our relationships. And I went out to meet with our top 20 customers within the first two weeks and just sat down with them. And I was very vulnerable. I just went out and said, this is what happened to our business, right? This is what I think the issues were. You know, it's not that anyone did anything wrong. It's just we had, you know, we just weren't rightly structured or we didn't have the right opportunities or we didn't know what we were doing in certain areas and you know, but this is how we're going to fix it, right? And I gave them a direct line into me and I said, look, you know, our, our, the previous CEO, he didn't meet with enough customers and I said, here's your opportunity, like anytime you need anything, call me, right? Which was awesome, right? So I did that. I was very just getting around to building that trust on both sides. Um, and then the other side of it too was just to look at the little wins that we could get and celebrate them really quickly. So the second that we got a quick win, it was bang. Everyone was celebrating it and keep that momentum going because – People love coming to work in a happy place and when there's success. Um, and, yeah, when, when there's a lot of failure that kind of leads to, you know, people worried about their jobs effectively, you know, the smallest little things are awesome, right? And that mm. built up the culture very quickly. So that was kind of the key thing. It was just get to the customers and the shareholders were the important as well because, you know, a lot of the times, <laughs> you know, I hear people say, oh, the shareholders don't understand us, blah, blah, blah. share price is tanking because... They don't really understand our business. They don't understand your business because you haven't gotten out and told them about your business, right? <laughs> so it's like go out and meet with them. Treat them as 
who they are. They're the owners. And it doesn't matter whether they own a thousand shares or they own a million shares. They're the owners of your business. Just, you know, if they stick with you, your business is, is around. If they start selling out, your business is stuffed. On the customer front, how did that so obviously you went out and you you know you were having conversations what how did that correlate to change in the business you know like what was some of the kind of not not specifically but overarchingly like what did what did that that kind of i guess strategic move of like we need to really go out and speak to the customers what what was the end point in in you know turning the business around yeah that's what were the learnings you know you know you got to really listen to your customers a lot of the times we have big sales teams and they sit there and they nod their head and like, yep, 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 yep. Here's a statement of work for what I think you want, right? It's never what they want, right? Um, so it's actually really listening to them and just asking them the key thing. No one ever, in, in the consulting world, particularly in services, it's really important to understand what the customer's objectives are, understand their business. And a lot of the time we know their business better than they know their business because we've been working with them for 10, 20 years and they've been around in that role for five years, Right. So we can actually help them a bit too, but you've got to build that level of understanding between them. So listen to them. Just go and ask them questions. Like I, I always go out and I, you know, if, if I've spoken 50% of the time in that meeting, then that's a failed meeting for me, right? I've got to have listened 75% of the time. Go back, digest it and share my experience. The second part was explain my experience. Show, show what I know because a lot of the time when you've got people going in there, it's not, they don't always have the expertise. So for them to trust, I've got to know that, you know, we've been there before. Like I, I, I call myself sometimes a CEO that codes because I can build a lot of the stuff that my team can because I've come mm. from there. So when I'm listening to them, I don't want to get too techie, right? But I want to, I really want to understand and, 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 and kind of be able to pitch new ideas to them as well. The other key problem that we got in our industry is a lot of people wait for what they call a problem statement. They tell me what your problem is and I'll tell you how to solve it. We're in this amazing technology world, right, where you should be looking at what you don't know, not what your problems are, what your opportunities are. And we talk about that at NCS as make tomorrow, right? Mm. Um, and we really want to make that tomorrow happen. And the best way to do that is to go to a customer and go, hey, have you thought about this? And if you put an idea in their mind that's something that they hadn't thought of that shows that you know their business really well, they're going to come back to you all the time. And that, that's built on that second point as well. Like it, you can't fundamentally do that unless you – completely understand what yeah what uh, or you have experience and credibility right like you know you can uh, it's such an interesting concept of like a, the difference between a good idea and a bad idea yeah right and or, or just ideas in general and the you know the difference between someone with experience and the ideas that they will give the client versus you know just chucking up ideas yeah and the client's sitting there going uh, they clearly don't know what I'm trying to achieve or yeah. they clearly have no idea about my business and there's a disconnect there. And you said, like, the ability to listen is such an underrated skill, right? Like, like listen to the person sitting in front of you yep. and and actually you can you, even just reading them, right, in a sense. Like, I think, like, I mean, one of the, be- the beautiful things about being in this chair and, and being a host is um, you get – you're building a skill of like being able, because being a good host is about listening to someone. Yeah. Right. And so, and you get the same kind of experience if you are good at sales, right? Yep. Like you, you know, a good person in sales is really someone who really listens to the individual and then understands how their product 
can solve some of those problems, not the same problem over and over and you're just kind of throwing the same thing at people. So I think a lot of what you just mentioned is almost like a one is, um, you know, dependent. They're all dependent of, of each other. Um, yep. and, and, and if we talk about just providing a solution, I feel like that's a really good insight that you just provided on like how to build a solution. Yeah. You know? And it's also the other thing to be reminded is there is always a person that you're talking to. And this is the one thing that people don't think about as well. You're listening, but you're talking to a person mm. and you've got to build a relationship with them. Right? They've got to want to talk to you. Like I love these people that go in and like, oh, I'm going to tell. Like, actually, I've seen a great example once where someone's gone in and said something to someone and said, oh, what's your, this is years ago. What's your view on chatbots? And the guy's like, what's a chatbot? This is where they first come out. He goes, you don't have a chatbot. Oh, shit, I'll be in tomorrow morning. We'll build it. It's going to cost you 10 grand to get started. Don't worry. We'll fix it for you. Right? Now, that works for some people. <laughs> a lot of the time, it's going to, you've got to start with, you know, build that relationship. There's a person behind it, and that person's got to want to work with you as well. So that's the other po point too is that if you go in too, you know, brash and talking too much, yeah, you're not going to build that relationship. You've got to get to know them. And, and even within an organisation, everyone's got their own independent objectives of what they've got to achieve. Like, what are they going to do for that organisation? How do we learn what they want to do? How do we help them be successful? Yeah, and and like I, I it, it's very true. Uh, there's a really good statement of like you can have the best meal in the world in a restaurant that smells like sewerage and yeah. you'll hate it. Yeah. And I think it talks to like the idea of like, you could have the best product in the world. If someone doesn't like you, they're not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like if they think you're an idiot, they, they're not going to buy from you, right? Because they're not going to want to work with you over a long period of time. I think yep. that's kind of what you're saying is like, especially being in services, I think as well, like when you, uh, something that I've learned, you know, more just being coming into the service business is like, it really does matter if this person, first of all, that feels like you have a fundamental care for their situation. And second of all, they, they like you or they don't like you, yeah. you know, like that's, that, I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, oh, I would love to, I want to go, I want to dive into AI a little bit with you, but I feel like I, I, there's, there's a, I do, I don't want to jump past that into that straight away. Cause I feel like that's a completely different subject. Um, what, uh, I, I guess like, finishing up on on that second phase of your journey what would you say are the two or three key principles that you learned through during that phase um in hindsight right like you know if you think about fundamentally and and more about yourself as an operator what you know what would you say are two or three key lessons as an operator that you learned mm -hmm. when you look back at the early days when you look back at your whole journey and then obviously entering back into because, you know, the, um, the CEO chair, what was those two or three things that you learn about yourself as an operator that have kind of shaped to, to even where you are right now? Yeah, I think number one for me is the energy you bring to work and the enjoyment and the passion you bring to work is what people see and what keeps people excited, customers and staff, mm. right? So when I came back in on that day, you know, got out of my board shorts, got into a suit, turned up in the office, that morning I was nervous as hell because this was a big thing. Like, you know, I've been a startup founder and I'm going to take over a publicly listed company with a lot of people who think they're going to lose their job. And I thought, shit, this is hard, mm -hmm. right? And I walk in there and I was just, you know, I, I just didn't feel it, right? I really didn't feel it. It happened day, quick too, right? It, it was quick. like so quick. You're not yeah. even 
And I was more, I was more proud of myself than really excited about the role, right? And, and what I could do. And then I had a reflection of it. And that night I just went back, went to a hotel room, sat down. Um, you know, I was already into a little bit of this biohacking stuff. And I actually sat there and I, I did like a, a breathing activity and just kind of brought myself down just out of the stress zone and just kind of got myself into kind of a nice position. And I sat there and I thought to myself, what do I really need to do? And this was kind of a turning point for me. And I just thought, I'm just going to go back and have fun. That's what I do. I have fun at work. I love being at work. I love the people at work. I bring the energy with it. And the next day when I went in, it was a completely different me, right? And it was awesome. So the one thing I've learned is that it's, it's about yourself and being confident in what you've done before is going to be okay for what you've done next. Because someone selected you to be there because of that, right? Yeah, Your so business true. has been successful because you've done that before. You don't need to change yourself for something else. And that's, that's probably the key thing. And um, so my biggest learning now is that I go into the office. We're now going through, you know, we've sold Melbourne IT became Arc Group. We rebranded it. We sold it to Singtel. We're now a much bigger company. We've got 12,000 people. I'm running a global business with a few thousand people. And I go in there and I'm unique because I'm me, right? And mm -hmm. I'm just like, people joke about the energy and, you know, yeah, kind of, yeah. Oh, have you just had a cryo? Have you just done this? <laughs> but that's that's what I love doing. And because I bring that to work, it brings that around. Yeah, you know, and it's always a good, fun place to be. And people will get more done and, and we just enjoy what we want to do. So I think that's that's my number one learning of it all. And that resonates with customers too. Like even when I get there and, you know, I'm quite personal with them and talk about stuff. It's not about, you know, the old school consulting model, build a relationship with a customer, take them out for lunch, good bottle of wine, you know, get drunk. You know, you're done, right? Build a relationship on that. You know, my relationships now are just really kind of completely different. It's kind of get to know the person really well. Yeah, yeah I feel like you like there's such a key lesson there for anyone, you know, like in general. Like you can almost, like I know for me, I can pinpoint any time that I felt a sense of friction was purely from the fact that I was probably not being myself. Yeah. Um, I was trying to be something outside of myself and, um, and, and there's only, that, that is like a, you might have some success, but it's a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And, and then everything else around you will start to deteriorate because of the fact that you're not, you're not being yourself and you're trying to be something outside of yourself. And I think when you like, you know, that is such a key, key thing. And, and I think people lose that, especially in business, because you think you need to and you know you need to be able to operate right but that's what the most that's what people care about the most yeah you and then there's an element of you know you feel like at times like for you it was like going into a almost like you're going into a, a publicly listed company you've never you've you've obviously been a founder before but it's a completely different kettle of fish right is, and yeah. so I, I actually think it's really impressive that you did that from day one right or, or the second day like that's i i know that um that would yeah, it's important too. I've, I've got two really good business partners. Well, I've had there's three in this next one, but like I've, I've always had these like two partners by my side on everything I've done. Mm. And while I talk about me being in the energy, one of my business partners, he is, if you ever have a technology project, he's the guy you need to have. Yeah. If it's good, bad, whatever, he's like the most detail, picks up detail in a heartbeat. So him going in and being himself, me going in and being myself, like we're completely opposites that way. And it just, it works. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be the energetic. You just got to be yourself, right? Mm. And people like, like we have like a stand-up every day and we kind of joke with each other. Like we've been joking for 
yeah, we worked together as graduates 20 years ago, right? Um, and we joke about it. People think that's quite funny because we kind of take the piss out of each other on our shortcomings, we call it. Yeah, my energy, his, his detail, whatever. And we find that quite funny. But we brought the fun to it. But um, it doesn't matter what your style is. It's, that's your style. Don't try and change it because that's why people have been there in the first place and that's what's made you successful. All right, so what we might do now is we'll move. I'd love to talk a little bit about your new role. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of innovation at the moment. I feel like we're in, we're at the start of a revolution, you know, so so I think um, I love to start study history a little bit and and um, and the cycles and so on, and I feel like we're at the start of a revolution. So I'd love to, for you to touch on your new role and we then we can discuss some of the new exciting technologies and things that are kind of, captivating at the moment yeah so it's interesting the learnings from the last one where i was a founder in a business probably not well respected as a founder was kind of there for a time get out do something else this time around they've kind of taken the founder and said okay well you're, you're an entrepreneur you can build stuff what can you build for us and for our customers so the new business is owned by singtel singtel's the biggest telecommunications group in asia pacific and we're the biggest asia pacific or pan pack held services firm is in NCS, which is, so the other businesses are Optus as well. So we're all kind of combined, but individual businesses. So NCS as a consulting business built a new business called Next. Next is their innovation digital part of the business. And that's the part that I co-lead globally. And that's all around innovation. So tick number one, they've gone and said, you know, founder, entrepreneur, let's use him for what he's good at. And, and we've gone and built that. So we started that, built a big brand around it. It's awesome. What we look at is what is the emerging technologies that are going to really disrupt the world going forward. And we've got four key things at the moment that we look at. One is the metaverse or Web3. One is artificial intelligence and digital trust around that. So you've got to be able to trust in it. Um, and, gener and generative AI is the third one who wouldn't be doing that, or AI in general. And then the other one is sustainability. Because um, I think sustainability is going to have it enormous impact well it already is on the world but from a technology perspective we can impact sustainability in a huge way so how do we how do we do that um gen ai like <laughs> september last year no one knew anything about it the fastest adopted technology in the world everyone's using chat gpt i've got a daughter who uses i call it snap gpt because on snapchat there's there's a the generative ai um it's everywhere right so how do you actually use that and where is that going to go? So that's, that's part of my role is to look at that. And I speak to a lot of customers around two key things at the moment, really around that and Web3 um, and robotics, automation, AI, AI in general. Like it's been around for years. It's like, where's it going? And I think you talk about this next revolution, industrial revolution will become the robotic re revolution or whatever it is. That's where we're heading. And, um, and how do we do things smarter rather than, you know, we've always said do things smarter, not harder, smarter, whatever. Yeah. Smarter, <laughs> We're smarter, not harder, not harder yeah. right? Um, this is exactly it, right? We've got a tech challenge, we've got a, a skills challenge globally. You know, we can't find enough people to do the jobs that we need to do, but we've now got this amazing new technology that can do all the mundane stuff for us so we can do stuff that we want to do. That That's where we start. And and so really what what we're talking about there is and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but but what we're looking at there is basically productivity as a whole going through the roof. You know what it yeah. what it 
took to build, let's just use a million dollar company, right? What it took to build a million dollar company, say five years ago, is not going to be what it takes now or yeah. and, and in a sense, in, or when we talk about team, right? Because you're talking about increasing the productivity. And then obviously, can you talk to the idea around technology driving prices, you know, being it being deflationary, driving prices down? Because a lot of, you know, if you look at, I guess the way things are moving now and you look at AI, yeah. the cost structures of what, it, you know, of any product um, are probably going way down at the moment. Um, can you talk to what the big picture is yeah, for I AI think, and what it does and what it's going to mean for businesses? Yeah. Well, where do you start on that? So I think the best is with an example. So I went through a, an Australia Post distribution centre about five years ago. And if you ever go through any centres, like they've got the most amazing technology around when a parcel comes in, it goes on a conveyor belt, it reads a barcode, as long as it's in the right direction, it puts it into a box, it goes to a postcode, truck picks it up and it goes. That's where the automation works. Where it doesn't work is when something's on the wrong side or it doesn't pick up the barcode, it drops into a pool, someone has to manually process it. And one of the tasks in the centre is literally a person who sits on a chair and has a touchpad in front of them, punches in a postcode, 3146, 3187, you know, and I look at that and I go, Shit, that's, who will want to do that job? And they have to rotate the people around because no one wants to do that job. So I go to myself, okay, well, how could you put a robot in the loop to do that as well, right? So that's to me, there's all these tasks out there. Now, I don't know if you can physically do that because it's a dropped parcel. You probably could somehow. But if you can get robotics to do that or automation to do that, then that job that no one wants to do but has to do for 20 minutes every hour because someone has to do it can be removed and then they can do the stuff that they want to do, right? So number one, productivity goes up because you want to be at work. Like I don't want to be at work because I want to sit there and punch in three, one, four, six a million times, right? I want to be at work because I'm doing something meaningful, right? Um, and, and that's where it comes into it. So an example we use in the workforce is like for an accounting company who has to chase up bills or something like that. Um, we can have automation tools that do that for you, right? So instead of having to chase up a thousand bills, you call the three people that you need to call rather than a thousand people that you just need to ask them for money. No one likes asking for money. So that's kind of the robotic side of it as well. So that just creates more productivity, but it creates more enjoyment of what you do. And people are going to enjoy what they do. They're going to do it a lot better. Um, that's where I think the starting point really comes into it. You then elevate it to the next level of, you know, um, I was in LA last week and I was walking across, or last week, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking across the road. There's this little robot. They're, they're like little delivery cards. And um, it's kind of cool, but I was trying to see what would happen if I stepped in front of it, would it trip over me, whatever, because we've got these in Singapore and they're really intelligent. I'll just stop. And like, this was crossing the road, right? It was waiting for the green man and it was crossing the road. And I'm like, shit, what's going to happen if I stand right in front of it here and it's going to get driven over by a car and, you know, very fascinated by it. But that's just another technology of, you know, it's a short delivery system. You know, you can deliver it with a, instead of a drone, a little robot that can automatically go through and do that sort of stuff. So the person, again, is doing what they want to do rather than walking a delivery of a pizza or a whatever it is that they're delivering, right? And we got one in NCS that does it on Sentosa Island, delivers food, stuff like that. So that's where it's kind of getting into that next level. Um, but there's also the technologies that do it better. So you ever go into Changi Airport, you'll see these little police, what look like uh, segways, right? 
they're not really segways. They're just monitoring video analytics. If someone leaves a bag, it's it's protecting you from a security perspective, right? Um, robots can do that better because they can scan more areas. They've got more intelligence behind how they're processing the images and stuff like that than having hundreds of people who need to go on breaks and stuff. People don't like watching out for bags. But instead, if something happens, they'll go in and intervene and, and, and you know, fix the situation. So that's kind of – there's a lot of different levels of productivity – um, more so than just get chat GPT to write my homework assignment. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I think the robotics, I, I think, look, the robotics is probably less understood by consumer or by the everyday person, right? Is in like, I think everybody thinks it's a lot further away than what it is. Yeah. I think the AI and the chat GPT, everybody understands because it's got a massive use case currently and every, it can be used across you know, nearly, nearly on anything, right? I guess the thing I'm interested in from your perspective as someone who understands this stuff really well is what it means for businesses going forward, you know, because um, there's, 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 there's kind of real ch- ch- two viewpoints, right? There's like I look at it, okay, I can use AI to do a specific, you know, um, or play a specific role in my company that I was previously paying a wage for. Yep. Um, now I'm paying a subscription, a monthly subscription for, um, and and you know people are going to build their own AIs and so on. And I'd love to understand the relationship between that, but then also less. You know, is there actually less jobs? Right. So there's the kind of viewpoint of there might be less jobs in future, which I don't believe that to be so. But I'd love for you to explain a little bit about yep. that. But then also what it means for companies. Um, who can leverage these technologies and, and what they should be doing, you know, yeah. regarding these technologies. I think it's about different jobs, not less jobs. So it's repurposing what you do. So we have, we monitor a lot of systems, like whether it's a, an education system or, or a computer system of some sort, right? And apps and all that. And, you know, we, we get a lot of inbound emails and we get a lot of problems and fault tickets and stuff. And we can use robotics or automation to analyze that so that when something comes up, we can actually go and focus more on speaking to the customer about it. Now, that doesn't reduce the volume of work. It just means we get through it a lot quicker and we get to the answers a lot better and we're doing a better job of it, right? Um, there will be industries where it can reduce the number of jobs required in it um, and and can bring a product or service down, right? But in a lot of instances, I believe, yeah, there's going to be a need for a human in there somewhere they're probably going to get paid more because they're adding more value now to a to a particular role than they were before because they were doing a repetitive task that could be done by something else. Um, and it's creating new industries as well. That's the other thing. Like you know, all of a sudden we've got these new industries popping up. There's more jobs popping up than we could have imagined before. Then how quickly can we you know, enhance that and, and get people to work with it? So I think there's different elements to it. Um, there's definitely the need for humans involved with these processes to build them. Like for me personally, I would rather, I kind of say I'd rather build the house and live in the house, right? I'd rather build the technology that allows it to do something else over time, uh, like the conveyor belts or something like that. And we need to keep programming it and make it faster and smarter and better um, to do that. Um, and that keeps the product consistent and pricing and everything like that. Product keeps improving. We get better products quicker. You can just tell from the how quickly technology and new products hit the market nowadays. Like the iPhone, I think someone was saying it's what, 12 years old? Right, and you know, now they're releasing a new one every year. We can only do that because of some of this automation. Whereas, you know, how often in the past were we releasing a new telephone? Right, 
like new products and services that are hitting the market, we're moving at such a rapid pace that the automation is feeding that ability to do it rather than removing the need for things. So it's creating new products that are costing more money or yeah, different areas. Yeah, and that's kind of like coming back to the point I was making before around like, it's probably not a good example, but it explains a little bit more about what I think the concept is, is like really what these, they increase your capacity, yep. right? Because they, and, and more importantly, if you can, and it will also narrow your focus. So like, you know, the mundane stuff, if you don't have to do it anymore, um, like oh, I can give you an example that like we use a lot of AI to do what we do. Right. And so instead of having someone who has to watch a full episode now, we actually get AI to analyze the full episode and yep. it, it finds the good, you know, snippets and all these kind of things. Right. And so, you know, it's, and yeah, it takes a bit of time to train the AI to do it properly and to get to the level that the human does. But once you get to that point, your cost, your cost structures, you know, a lot lower from a business perspective, your output gets a lot hot, like, you know, a lot higher. And so you, you can do more. Um, and more importantly, you can focus your people on, on, you know, high, uh, high yeah. effectiveness, um, tasks in a sense. Well, well, take another lens to it. So two industries have been working on one was traffic management, another one, um, in uh, building and construction, right? We can use AI to automate safety checks. So we did one years ago at a mining site where we use, um, we use AI to look at big machinery and it would tell you what the 10 reasons, normally you go, okay, well, before I get on a piece of machinery to do digging holes or boring or whatever you're doing, you need to make sure this safety check is all there, right? And it's generic because you don't know the individual machine. We use predictive analytics to say, well, knowing this machine, what it's been used for, how old it is, the heat of it, some key measures of the machine, we know the likelihood of things that will fail. They're the key things you need to test. So someone could get on that machine in a fraction of the amount of time with increased level of safety um, than they would have had before. So people are safer and they get onto the job quicker. So we can mine a lot more in a shorter period of time in a safer environment, right? Or traffic management, you know, the there's zero, you know, um, zero fatalities and injuries and all that sort of environments. But that is hard to do unless you put all these checks in place. But technology can make that happen quicker. So when you stand up a traffic site where people are standing with the lollipop signs and the witch's hats and stuff, if you can do that with technology, which can tell you a car's coming too quickly or whatever, you know, everyone get out of the way sort of thing and save a life, amazing, right? So it's allowing you to do your job better. It's not replacing anything at all. It's a safer environment. Mm. and Or you're getting onto something a lot quicker. So that's a, that's a very different way of looking at it. Yeah, it's so it's so true. And I think like it's... It's such an interesting time. Like we, you know, we don't really like we we can talk about this stuff and say you know use examples that are current. But like you know, who knows yeah. where we're going to be in five years? You know, yeah. in terms of the innovation and especially the pace that it's happening at is it's uh it's really cool. Um, it's it's uh I find it cool. Like I love it. I think it it makes the world a better place and and we get better outcomes and we can progress a little bit further. And especially on some of these bigger issues like. The, the kind of four key pillars that you talked about, I'm, I'm sure there's an emergence where they end up kind of coming together and, and yeah. you know, that's when the revolution, you know, probably happens. But, um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting space and there's a lot of innovation happening at the moment. Yeah. We're going to take a bit of a turn now. Um, something that we're, we're doing now is Triple H, um, the idea of some of the things that have shaped you into the person you are today. I'd love for you to tell us a little uh, – a tale of hardship and and how that has shaped you today into the the person you are and and what some of those key kind of components are 
Yeah, so hardship. So I think I've talked a lot about recently about the near-death experience I had in a sporting event overseas. And um, that's kind of something that's – and there's two parts to that. There's the actual event itself where I was on a, a bridge and um, that bridge collapsed in an opening ceremony for, for a large event at the Maccabee Games. Um, I was fortunate enough I was flung back onto the shores, not into the water where unfortunately four people were killed. Um, there's two parts to that that I've learned out of that. Like there was that where that happened and then afterwards where I had to race, I was a triathlete and um, went on to race. And the, the two lessons I learned in that were really, if I go to the race first, it was a really hot day. I was highly dehydrated, hadn't slept much. I was traumatised by the whole thing. I still wanted to race and um, I was in no condition to do the race and in the run I actually don't remember any of the run I was effectively hallucinating the whole way just no idea what was going on wow um learned that I could push myself beyond a limit probably the reason I don't race competitively anymore in that space but because I know you can and I know you, you know, so what that's taught me is you have limits right operate within your limit and don't go too far right but to understand what your limits are and I think that's important in the business world too, right? You've got to limit. Where businesses become have problems, it's when they go the next level. They go, you know what? I'm, you know, immortal. You know, nothing's ever going to injure me, harm me, whatever. I can do whatever I need to do. Inevitably, you end up doing something harmful, right? So business is exactly the same. The second one was I was a 17-year-old and I'm in a I'm in an emergency situation. And I looked back for years on that and said, what could I have done better? You know, I was a highly, I was, I was a top athlete, you know, quite strong, quite fit. You know, I was trained surf lifesaver at the time as well. Had my bronze medallion, all that sort of stuff, people falling in the water. How could I have helped out? And I froze and I did nothing. And for years and years and years, I thought about that from the perspective of what could I probably have done potentially save more lives or something. And I look back on it now, I look back and I was a 17 year old, like you can't be expected to do that. But you look at that as a crisis situation. How do you perform in a crisis, right? How, what, what are you going to do? And, and it does, and it applies to everything in life. Like, you know, you get called up to that board meeting and you know, you're going to be put in as a CEO. How do you respond to that? And that's really taught me that, that whole, you know, being inside yourself, just really come to grips with everything. You know, take a second to de-stress, like, and just then evaluate the situation. And, even in a crisis situation where something's happening in an emergency and it has to happen in a split second, breathe, right? You know, get your mind thinking properly and, and then you'll perform a lot better. Yeah, wow, that's, that's um, and, and you know, I think, I think the interesting thing is, is crisis is different for everyone. You know, yep. we react the same. So you in that moment, you know, man, I couldn't even imagine, but, but you can feel like that in a business when something's going wrong, you know, when you feel like the, the world's crumbling underneath you in a sense. So I think that there's an interesting perspective there of like, yeah. um, and I totally agree with the mind. It's almost mindfulness, right? It's, it's the ability to kind of center yourself and just re refocus and recalibrate. Cause in those moments you just, you almost freeze and the world's just, everything's just happening around you. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a crazy feeling. Um, but I think even just that story in itself, and I, I imagine that, you know, it kind of did shape you and help you and, and serve you well. You know, when we talk about the, the, the becoming the CEO and kind of that full circle moment, I would assume it, it, it held you in good stead then as well. And those learnings over time. 
Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, you, I was young and I'd never say I was fortunate to be in that situation, but the learnings I got out of it were, you know, probably pushed me forward a few years faster than I, than I should have. Yeah. Do, do you think that there's, a, do, do you think there's another lesson there of, you know, not being too hard on yourself, right? The idea of like looking back and saying, hey, like none of that matters right now. Yeah. You know, the key is to learn from it. That's it. And it took me a long time. I mean, I was a 17-year-old. Like I, I've got kids and I couldn't imagine them being in that situation, having to kind of come up with it. And they're not 17 yet, but when they get there, having to come up with like what you do. And But it also made me think there's there's nothing in your life that you shouldn't reflect back on no matter what age you're at, right? Because you can learn from everything. Everything is a learning experience. And, um, and yeah, that's a pretty extreme one, but it's nevertheless, it's kind of like, yeah, you can't be too hard on yourself. Like you will fail at things and you will freeze. And that doesn't mean that the next time this happens, or hopefully not the same thing, but next time I'm in a crisis of an emergency, then I'm going to freeze, right? I know how I think I can react better the next time. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of, it doesn't matter what age or where you're at in your lifestyle, life, life space. Like if it's today, you learn something, it's, it's, there's always an opportunity. Yeah. I love that. Who's your hero and, and why are they your hero? And is there, is there a story that epitomizes why they're your hero? Um, yeah. So I love my footy. So, and we've spoken about this before you, you, you've had your, your footy as well, but, um, I was never a great player, but, um, one of my heroes as I was growing up. And um, I've been involved with the Hawthorne Footy Club, so I feel, you know, embarrassed to say who my heroes were, but it was Shane Crawford. Yeah. And I don't know if you know much about him, but he he was in that era where I was really, he's probably not much younger than me, much older than me, um, but it was in that era where, you know, I used to watch a lot of footy and mm. I would watch someone who would train and like just the work ethic of what went into it and hearing stories and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, just going on to finish his career with a premiership kind of on the last game and the work. And, I'd, like, I'm, I'm sure I'll cross his path at some point in time and chat to him about it. But, um, but you know, I don't think he was the most talented footballer. I think he just had the work ethic harder than anyone else. And he joked around, he did stuff, whatever. But now you see what he's doing. Like, in, you know, I, I saw him in, um, was a musical he was in, uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamer. Just does whatever he wants, but because he works hard, right? And and you can achieve at anything. And I've gotten to to fortunate enough to to know Dylan Olcott recently as well with a few things. We've done some tech for him as well. And another person who's just he's driven by not by his sporting prowess of what he's done, but being able to inspire people as to what to do. And that they're the sort of heroes that I look for. The people that you know they're not naturally gifted in whatever they do. They've just got a purpose and a reason, and they go out and they do it because. There's plenty of very talented people who take things for granted. Yeah, it's very true. And um, highlight, what's the what's the highlight of your, your your life so far that you can kind of look back on and and you, you still kind of reflect on it? Then it shaped you in a certain way. Oh, that's a really hard one. Highlight. Um, there's a few, and I I I, I just hope to create keep creating them. Um, but I think there was a moment in life it's a really random one but when I first made just a little bit of money I had this picture in my mind now I didn't come from much as a child and grew up in family of four and you know middle class so not not poor but not 
you know, super wealthy, whatever. And I had this thing where I thought, you've made it when you drive a BMW. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd made my first dividend check, right, in InfoReady, and I got some money and I was like, anyway, and um, and so I went out and I bought my first BMW. It was a really basic three series, or bottom of the bottom of the bottom, right? And I just got that, drove it home, sat in my driveway. And I remember just sat there and I just chucked on eye at a time and I'm punching the, not punching, but hitting the steering wheel going, fuck, I made it. Here I am. I've, you know, I've been a success, right? This is awesome. And I just remember that day sitting in the you know, driveway of my townhouse, like just ready to go home and I just sit there just like so proud of myself. That was like a real milestone for me. Like I've had done plenty of things beyond that, but that was just to me was like, it's not about money. It was about achievement. And I had this object in my mind that was like, if you drive a BMW, you've made it in this world one day. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And um, that was just cool. Yeah, I think uh, it's funny. Like I, I have very vivid moments too like that where I, you look back and and the, the feeling you get um, through those little minor achievements and you can look back at those as like a foundation yeah. for, for moving forward. But I think it also talks to the idea of just really having a clear vision and how powerful that can be, you know, what is success to you as an individual? And then no matter what that is, the key is just you're working towards that and then the reward, right? So the reward of I've achieved this yeah. and then I get, I gave, you know, and, and you're right. It, it, it's not a, it's not the best car in the world, but it, it meant something to you and there was a purpose yeah. there. So I think there's, there's great insight there. Yeah. We're going to move on to quick fire questions now. So yeah. one piece of advice for your younger self. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself. Kind of circles back to what we we were just yeah. saying. Uh, yeah. Um, what's the most important trait that a founder must have for success, and why? Bring your whole self, and don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Like people need to know who you are. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like I know we talked a little bit about it earlier, but you mentioned vulnerability yeah. um, and, and the relationship between being yourself and the vulnerability. Yeah, I think not many people really understand how hard it is in a startup. And so it's important to, to be able to, to express that in some way. So if you're, if you're stressed because you can't sleep because you, know, you don't know if you have to take out more money on your next mortgage to pay salaries, there's no harm in telling people that, right? Don't think they're going to run for the hills because I think you can't afford to pay them. Right? They're going to rally around and try and help you in a way. And that's an extreme situation. But if you're, you're worried about something, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with everyone else and hopefully you know, it's a community. Everyone will help you fix yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's some of the best advice that I've, 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 I think I've actually heard because I feel like the one, there's, there can be a constant feeling in business that it's very lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, but it, it doesn't have to be. Right, I, I love like, that. Yeah, so someone told me once, being the CEO, the founder of EMD is the loneliest place in the world. And I've strived to do it the opposite way. And I've built so many good friends along the way because of that. And just that's just me being open and honest and transparent about stuff. And, you know, and it's not for everyone, right? But it's for me and it works. I absolutely love that. That's, 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 the, that's gold. Um, if you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? Well, sorry, what? If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? A do-over? A do-over to the business? Just in general. It doesn't have to be business. Uh, one do-over. I, I got this question. So I got for my very – it's my first Father's Day this year and I got given a book and it's a book where you write to your child. Yeah. And it literally just asks you questions about all the facets of life. Got it yeah. from that. It, it's, it's a fascinating question. One do-over. Why is it that when you talk about do-over, I think about – 
Yeah, could you be taller, stronger, musclier, you know, whatever. Um, do over for me would be, and this is going to sound a bit geeky, would be going back to my childhood. I wish I had the passion and energy and thirst for knowledge as I do now. I don't know if it's actually possible. I read a book on everything. This longevity journey I'm on, I love it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading about, I'm reading a book just on sleep at the moment, right? Um, and if I had to do over, like, it would be more of a intellectual one. I'd like to have gotten a bit more involved in it. But I was more involved in sports as a kid. Don't know that's physically possible because, you know, in hindsight, and maybe it's a stages in your life, but I reckon that's what it would be. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, fun, it's a funny question. I think, I think look, I agree with that because I think I was the same. Like, I was very sports orientated and I did not care about knowledge acquisition in a sense. Like, yeah. I was just... And I, you know, I think I, I probably had the skill set to do it, um, but it's it's definitely a, a uh, an interesting question, and yeah. and you know, um, I, I think you are where you are, right? Yeah. And that's the key. But it's interesting to hear what people. I think there's good lessons for others in in retrospect potentially. Yeah. But good question, Tristan. I want to say a massive thank you for ha- for coming on the show. Um, you know, you're someone who's got a, a such a large experience in in business, but you know, you're, you're vent- I think one of the things I learned today about you is that you have a thirst, um, um, no matter what you're doing, whether it's your biohacking now that you're loving, whether it's business, whether whatever it is that you're doing, you, you're you're willing to throw yourself into it and, and learn, and and that's something that I, I, I mean, I really admire about yourself. So um, a massive thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with our community, um, and you know, most importantly, I hope you enjoyed your experience as well. No, thank you. It's been awesome. Good chat. Good fun, and uh, hope you learned a few things. And to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, you know, it is because of your support that we get to interview amazing people like Tristan, um, and we want to continue to do so. A massive thank you, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next week. Yeah.